All right. Well, it is a joy to be back here. Uh, we uh, loved our time, Tamara and the kids and I, in Colorado, getting to see uh, Tamara's side of the family for the first time in a little over a year. Uh, and especially for our kids, uh, that's a, a really long time for them. It's a long time for us, really long for them. So it's wonderful to be able to see them. Thank you for letting us go. Um, and thanks so much for to Mike for speaking last Sunday. And oh, I want to let you know two things. Um, while I was there, I had a chance to meet with a number of people, individuals and groups uh, who have been praying for and supporting you guys and the work that this church is doing in Rock. And I want you to know that there, first of all, that there is a army of prayer warriors who are specifically lifting you up, praying for you, praying for this church. I just want you to know that. And I met a portion of that army of prayer warriors in Colorado, and they are so excited by what God is doing here, and they are praying for you. I want you to know that. And second of all, I want you to know that I spoke at Red Rocks Fellowship, one of the churches that we prayed for. We prayed for them last week. I got to speak to them. They let me speak for a full 15 minutes, and I managed to keep it to only 15 minutes there. Uh, lucky them. But I told them jokes, and they laughed. So I just want you guys to know, I am funny. So uh, there are a couple people who sometimes uh, might, might forget that, but I just want you to know it's been verified that at least in Colorado I'm funny. So there we go. Uh, with that, let's jump into our passage. We are in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't, you can grab one in the pew. Or if you don't like the version, we have a number on the third to bottom shelf uh, in the back of the sanctuary, and you can grab one of those. If you uh, don't have one of your own and you just want to grab one and put write your name on it, take it home so that you can read it, awesome. That's one of the best uses we can have for a Bible uh, that we buy as a church. We're talking through Romans chapter 9, and the title of our message is, What About Israel? What About Israel? And we need to remember, because we have jumped out of Romans for a while, for our series in Advent and uh, our first couple of weeks in January, as we spoke about how God is the God of new beginnings, our God is the God of redemption. We jumped out of Romans for a while, now we're coming back in, and it can feel like when we jump into Romans 9, like Romans 9, what we're going through is a, a section all by itself, kind of separated from the rest of the book, and it's so important that we remember it's not. This is the middle part, one of the middle parts of a larger letter that Paul wrote. And the whole letter is made to, uh, to go in and out about several points, but have a single theme that is running through the whole part of it. And in that theme is Romans 1, 16 and 17. We've been talking through it every single week of our, our sermon. So before I actually pull up the verse, I want to ask you, kind of like in kids' club, does anyone remember this verse? Is anyone willing to be bold enough to try to recite Romans 1, 16 and 17? Anyone? 
Anyone? Oh, come on, guys. We ask kids to do it. We can do it too. Anyone? If you don't know it yet, I ask you, go home this week and learn this verse. Learn these two verses because they are key to understanding what God is saying through the whole rest of Romans. Let's try reading it together as a group then. As soon as I can pull it up. My battery's not working? There we go. Let's say it together. Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the good news because it's God's power to save every believer, first the Jew and also the Greek. For in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the theme around which the whole book of Romans revolves. The gospel, God's power to save every believer. And we've been working our way through those five little mini-sermons that Paul has. He gives us a little message, and then he goes into a Q&A and answers some questions that the audience might have, anticipating their questions before moving on to the next phase of what he is trying to teach us. And right now, we are all the way down here at one of the bottom boxes in Romans 9. But it's interesting, because you look at this and you say, all right, then the rest of them kind of make sense, right? We talk about the need for God's power to save. We talk about how we receive God's power to save. We talk about once we receive the gospel, once we receive God's power to save, how do we benefit from it through our connection with Christ through our connection with the Spirit. That all makes sense, right? You're, you're kind of tracking all the way through chapter 8. And then you come to chapter 9, and it seems like Paul is tossing something out of left field, where he talks about God's power to save Israel. You say, where did that come from, Paul? It's helpful for us to remember that this actually is closely connected to what Paul is saying in the whole rest of his message. Can I skip to the next slide? There we go. Paul concludes the last section with Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 39, and he comes to this grand conclusion of that thought where he says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the past nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. Now, is there anything left out of that group? Is there anything at all outside of God himself that Paul has forgotten to include? Anything? Nothing. That means I'm convinced that nothing except for nothing and no one will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a wonderful promise that is. All right, next slide. There we go except for the fact that, if you'll recall, the book of Romans is written to a church that is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And that doesn't matter as much here for us Gentile church. But back then, that really meant something because the Jews were used to being the ones that God was using to spread the gospel. For well over a thousand years... God had said Gentiles and Jews could both believe in God. They could both worship God. 
But God worked to spread the news about who he was through one group, through one nation, and that was Israel. And even when they had fallen, even when they had failed, God never left his relationship with them. In fact, he said through the prophets, the sun and moon and stars will disappear. The very foundations of the earth will be removed before I forget my promise to you, nation of Israel. And when you turn away and you're sent into exile, when you repent, I will bring you back. You will always be my treasured possession, nation of Israel. And then Jesus came and said, I am the promised Messiah who will fulfill not just the way for the blessing for the whole world, but he said, I will lead the nation of Israel. And what did Israel say? Nah. Thanks for trying, Jesus, but we'll kill you instead. That's what they said. And now the question comes, because the church has arisen, and God seems to now be using not only Jews, but also non-Israelites, non-Jews, Gentiles, to spread the message about Him. And for the first time since Israel became a nation, the question becomes, Paul, everything you're saying sounds really good. You say nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But what about Israel? Hasn't Israel been separated from God's love? Next. And that's what Romans 9-11 through is trying to answer. It is giving us a case study of whether or not God is actually faithful to his promises. Because this is so important for us to answer whether God is faithful to Israel. If he's not, how can we trust him with his promises to us? Let's say my daughters grow up one day, and they fall in love with a married man who has a wife and children. And they say, Daddy... I know what you're going to say. I know you don't like it, but he loves me. He really does. And he promised that he would leave me or he would leave his wife and his children to be with me. And you say, Daddy, I know that he loves me. How else could he show his love other than to, to be willing to leave so much for me? What's the, what's the wise answer to respond to that my daughter with? It would be to say, daughter, daughter mine, if he's willing to give up on his vows for you and, and walk out of that relationship and commit adultery and all this stuff, what's to keep him from doing the same to you? Right? So many people in the church say, you know what, God, God had made these promises to Israel, but he doesn't really mean them. He decided that he didn't have to fulfill his promise. And now he's chosen the church again. And we call that God a God of faithfulness. If God is not faithful to all of his promises, how can we trust him to be faithful to any of them? This is what's at stake. What's at stake in Romans 9 through 11 is whether God is faithful to his promises and whether we can trust him. This matters. It is so important for us to get into. So there are three kinds of accusations that are being leveled against Paul. They're saying, in essence, Paul, if everything you're saying about the gospel, about the message of, of life, about grace, about forgiveness, about the fact that we are not under law anymore, if all of that is true, they're saying there are three kinds of accusations that might also be true. 
First of all, they're saying, Paul, if you're saying all this, maybe you don't care about Israel. And Paul responds to that. Next slide. I don't know why this clicker isn't working. Maybe the little tree of things up on top of the tower needs to be moved forward. The receiver, the USB things up on top of the tower. All right. Anyways, whatever. I got someone at the computer who can do slides. Sorry about that. Let's turn this off. Romans 9, verses 1 through 3. Paul is answering this question. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit. He's calling three witnesses to stand behind what he says. He says, Christ is my witness, my conscience is my witness, and the Spirit is my witness. He says, what I say is absolutely true. What is true? Verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. This is not the language of someone who says, meh, Israel, whatever, God's moved on. He says, Israel is my own flesh and blood. They are my brothers and sisters. And I care so deeply for them. Have you had a brother or a sister or a father or mother or a son or daughter or a grandchild or someone who you love with all your heart? And you have, you wish that they would go down the right road and make right choices, but you have seen them turn away from what is good and wise and true and right, and they are bearing the consequences for it. And you say, I love you so much that I would gladly take your pain on myself. I would take your brokenness. I would take your suffering if it meant that you would discover what it means to live and to understand what the right thing is. Don't have, do you have any of those situations, any of those relationships, especially where it's family? That's the kind of love that Paul is speaking out of here. He says, don't tell me that I don't care about Israel. I do. I love them so much. Next slide. Second accusation is they're saying, Paul, even if you care about Israel... What you're implying is that God doesn't care about Israel. And Paul answers that in verses 4 and 5. We don't have time to go through them all, but just, just think about what all these mean. They are Israelites. Stop. I'm, I'm sorry. I said I can't go through them all, but I've got to stop here. Israel is the name that God gave to Jacob, the father of Israel, right after a specific circumstance. When Jacob had done everything wrong and he had been forced to flee from his family and his inheritance, and he was finally now coming back to the land, to his family, to claim the promise, and he was about to run into his brother and his own family, and he thought, surely I have done so much wrong that there is no way that... I'll be able to survive this. No way that God will be for me. And he met God and said, God, bless me. And God acted like he was just going to walk right past him and ignore him and not bless him. And so Jacob grabs hold of him and holds him back from leaving and wrestles with him all night, even when God displaces his hip 
so that he can't, uh, so he will have a permanent limp from that day forward. He nevertheless holds on and says, God, I am not letting go until you bless me. And God says, I will bless you. Not only that, I'll give you a name. Instead of Jacob, the trickster, you will be known as Israel, the one who has struggled with God and overcome so that you get blessed. That is their very name. Is that the name given to a nation that God will forget? Mm -mm. How about the fact that, back outside, how about the fact that to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the Shekinah glory in the tabernacle and the temple that no other nation had, the covenants, the promises given to to Abraham, to uh, David through Jeremiah. The giving of the law through Moses. No other nation, not even America, can say that they got their laws straight from God. Israel can. The temple service that pointed them to Christ. The promises. The ancestors are theirs. And from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all, praised forever. Amen. If I, if from Rock, the next president of the United States, we could say actually grew up in Rock. Do you think that maybe you would feel like this town has some bragging rights? Absolutely. How much more to say that from your people group, your nation came, or God, who has praised forever, came through you, came from your family. This is not how... God treats someone that he doesn't care about. He has shown them so much love in the past. And now we come to the final uh, accusation. They're saying, all right, Paul, maybe you care for Israel. Maybe God has cared for Israel. But nevertheless, you cannot deny that God has disowned Israel. That God is not working through Israel anymore. He is not intent to fulfill any of his promises in the future. And this is what a number of people in the church would say. God has moved on from Israel never to look back, never to fulfill any of his promises. And Paul himself says, no, not true, false. God has not disowned Israel. Let's take a look and see what he says. Romans 9 verse 6 tells us, Now it isn't as though God's word has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Paul is saying, first of all, if you're going to say God has disowned Israel... You got the people group that God is working through, the one that he had a special relationship, all wrong. It's not just John the Baptist said to the Pharisees that God can raise up children from these very stones. Jesus said that he is, has a special relationship. His brothers and sisters and mother, his family within Israel, are those who have trusted in him. He is changing the definition of Israel, but not outside of the way that John the Baptist or Jesus or the prophets of the Bible have done so in the past. He is saying the definition of who is Israel, it's not wider. He isn't saying, like Oprah style, you get to be Israel and you get to be Israel and you get to be Israel and everyone gets to be Israel. He's not doing that. Next slide. What he is saying is not all who are from Israel from the nation of Israel, born into the nation, not everyone who is in the nation are those that God has this special relationship with. Everyone born into the nation is under the Mosaic Covenant, but they are not all who relate to God in a special way, those who are God is going to use. He says there's a subgroup within the nation 
that God will use to spread the news about himself. And those are people who are born into the nation of Israel and who are believing Israelites, who are believers. Those are the ones that God will use to spread the news about himself. He is narrowing the definition. Does that mean that you and I personally, who have not who are not Israelites by birth, that we are not considered spiritual Israel? Yeah. Sorry if you thought you were. But this is what he is saying. But guess what? It's fine. Don't worry about it. God is big enough to bless you in a way that you will not be disappointed. But God says he is going to be faithful to Israel. If he changed the definition to say, you know what, when God meant Israel, he really meant anyone who believed, then everything that they're accusing Paul of about disowning the nation is absolutely true. But Paul is saying he has not forgotten his promise to this subgroup of believers in Israel. He will always be working through them. Next slide. Starting in verse 6 again. He says, now it isn't as though God's word has failed. Because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, neither are all of Abraham's children his, quote, descendants. On the contrary, looking back to Genesis, he said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. Next slide. That is, it isn't the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is a statement of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. What he is doing now is he is defending why God has the right to choose to use the people he is using within Israel and also the Gentiles. He says God absolutely has a choice to do that because Abraham used to have other children too. Isaac wasn't the only one born. There was also Ishmael. And not only Ishmael, by the way, but after Sarah died, Abraham married again and had other sons and daughters, plural. So why would God choose Isaac, someone who wasn't even the firstborn son? Next slide. Because if there was anyone Abraham would have picked to be the chosen blessed one, it was his firstborn son, Ishmael. Why would he choose Isaac? Why? Because, next, when Ishmael was born, God had made a promise saying, you will have a son through whom my promise will come, through whom I will bring blessing to all the families of the earth. And Abraham looked at his wife, his wife looked at him, and he, they both said, you know what, Sarah, I'm sorry, you're not going to have any children. You, you uh, never had children when you were of the age. You're no longer of the age. No children are coming through you. So what are we going to do? I know. We'll help God out. God made a promise, but he can't fulfill his promise unless we help him along by our strength, by our trying to figure out a way. Let's just step outside of the bounds of marriage in order to make sure this promise gets fulfilled. We'll help God out. And God said, Mm-mm, sorry, that's not how it works. Because I will fulfill my promise not based on your effort, not based on your work, but based on me, on my power, on my faithfulness to my promise. Ishmael was born not through, going back one slide, Ishmael was born because Abraham didn't trust God, but Isaac was the one that was the child of promise. And so we learn something about why God chose Isaac over Ishmael. Because he says, I will fulfill my promise. And I will work through those to whom I have given the promise, who trust in my promise. 
Next slide. And then he gives one more example, going all the way back to why Israel was the chosen nation even in the first place. He says, not only that, but Rebekah, daughter-in-law of Abraham, wife of Isaac. Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. Next slide. This is actually a little more complicated. One sentence, four parts, three verses. It gets complicated, so I split it up for you to help you understand. For part one, though her sons had not been born or done anything good or bad, part two, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls. Part three, she was told the older will serve the younger. Part four, as it's written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. This is kind of hard. Election, love, hate. What's going on here? This is so important for us to understand how God is working through Israel. Let's go to the next slide and parse this out. When Rebecca had children, she had twins, remember? Jacob and Esau were born the same day. They were the same age. One was born just barely before each other, but they're the same age, really. So they could have picked whoever. And God picked before they had done anything. He said he made his choice, though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad. God made a choice that they did not deserve. There was no way they could, that anyone could have looked at them and said, oh, this person deserves to be blessed by God more than this person. They were chosen when that was not even possibly an issue. Next slide. They didn't even, by the way, get to choose when they were babies and say, oh, this baby is ugly and this one probably has a good personality. You know, they, it was chosen before it was known. Why did he make this choice then? Because... God wanted his purpose, according to election, to his choice, to stand, not from works, but from the one who calls. It's not because they earned it, not because Jacob was a better person or he wanted the promise more. God says, I chose to bless Jacob because I chose to bless Jacob. And there is a reason apart from their earning it. Grace is not against works. It's a great motivation for works. Grace in the gospel is against earning. And then there's a question of what did he choose them for? Because some of us will look at the election here and say, the word election showed up and election, every time it shows up, means God chooses some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell. Every time you see that, you can automatically make that assumption. Why did God choose? Some of us will say that's why. Except for the fact that Paul tells us specifically why Jacob was chosen over Esau. He says the older will serve the younger. Jacob was chosen for a position of prominence in the family, for a place of blessing, and finally to be used by God. From the very beginning, before they were even, before they were even born, the election that God made of Jacob over Esau was not so that Jacob would go to heaven and Esau will go to hell. In fact, I would fully expect to see Esau in heaven one day. I'd be surprised if I didn't. Guess what? I would even be surprised if I didn't see Ishmael in heaven. I believe that there's... I have every reason that the Bible suggests to have a reasonable confidence that Esau and Ishmael were believers and will be in heaven one day. They were not chosen. God was not making the choice here to send some people to heaven and some people to hell. The election we're seeing is election to 
blessing and use by God. Did that play out in history then? How did it play out? Was God faithful to his promise when he made this promise to choose Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau? Did God remain faithful to his promise over thousands of years? He quotes history in Malachi 1, where he says, I have loved Jacob but hated Esau. Malachi is the last prophet to speak in the Old Testament. And it speaks not just of the individuals, but of the nations that came from them. And guess what? God did bless Esau. Esau did become a great nation that was a neighbor of Israel called Edom. And this nation lived in a fortress that had security, they had wealth, and they lasted as a nation for thousands of years. God did bless the socks off of Edom and Esau, their father. And yet compared to God's blessing that he had for Israel, compared to his love for Israel, his relationship with Esau almost looks like hate. He loved Esau, he loved Edom, and he blessed them, but his love for Israel, compared to that love for Esau, almost looks like comparing love to hate. God did bless Israel, but he didn't do it because of works. He didn't do it because of their earning it. He did it because of his promise, because of his choice to bless and to use Israel in the past. Next slide. This is what we're going to be seeing over the next three chapters as we play this out. Paul has gone through these eight chapters talking about how we can never earn God's love. We can never earn His favor through our works. We can never look to God and say, God, you should bless me. Or I know you will bless me because I look at myself, because of how often I go to church, because of how often I pray, because of all these different things. I know that you can bless me because of my works. No one can say that. But also, no one will ever be able to say, God, I know that you can't bless me. Because I don't go to church often enough. I know you won't bless me or love me because my life has fallen apart and I am totally unusable. No one will be able to say that ever. Why? Because how do we receive the grace and the love of God? By trusting in Jesus finished work by trusting in his love in what he who he is in what he's done and in what he promises to do for us and he says he will do all of his promises for everyone who trusts him not based on me not based on you but based on him his faithfulness there's no one outside of the reach of God's grace so Paul has been saying all of this And the question comes up now. You say nothing can separate us from God's love in Jesus. Hasn't God already abandoned his love for Israel when he chose to work through the Gentiles? You talk about his faithfulness and his love. Hasn't he abandoned Israel? For all of your words, does it really mean anything when you actually look at the world? And Paul says, no. 
He has not abandoned his love for Israel. Not in the slightest. There is not a single promise that God made to Israel that he will fail to fulfill for Israel. You can't just... That, what that means, by the way, as well, is you can't just take... We, Christians, cannot just open up our Bible and do the name it, claim it theology of I open up my Bible to... First Kings, whatever, and find a promise of God and say, whatever God said to Israel also matters to me, also comes directly to me. We don't work that way. God, whatever God promised to Israel, He will fulfill to Israel. Whatever He promises to you, He will fulfill for you. And you can trust Him to take Him at His word. This is the God we have. And I would rather have it that way than just be able to claim any promise. Because that means God is faithful and true. As with Jacob, God has the right to choose to work through people apart from works and apart from earning. And as with Isaac, God has the right to choose to work through people on the basis of faith, on the basis of his promise. And that means that none of us are outside of his reach. Let's close with something to know and something to show. First of all, something to know. Believer, brother, sister, God has chosen to bless you. He has chosen to bless you because of faith and not because of works. Take a look at Isaac. Take a look at Jacob. It's how he's done it in the past. It's how he's doing it now. But he doesn't just bless you so that you can come to church and say, Wow, aren't I blessed? Don't I get all this great stuff? He says that he has blessed you in order that you can be a vessel to carry his blessing to others and pour it out on them. He is constantly working to pour his blessing into you so that you can bless others. And what that means is that you are never beyond His reach. You are never beyond the reach of His love. You are never so far gone that you cannot turn back to God. Never, 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 never. And you know what else that means? Maybe you say, okay, yeah, I I know that God blesses me and it's good to know that I'm more secure than I thought. I thought I was doing well based on my works. Good to know I don't need to depend on it. Here's another thing, though. That means that no one is beyond his reach. Next slide. How about those people in your life who you love, who are utterly lost, and they don't even know it? Or maybe they do, but they don't think there's a way back. Maybe there's some of those people, friends or family, who you say, they don't they won't even listen to me maybe you've tried to tell them about jesus and maybe they've just shut you down and they don't listen they don't care maybe there's friends maybe people in your community that that they say you know what jesus good for you i'm glad you found something but just leave that god stuff out of my life don't bring it up with me i'm good enough without it There are people who are utterly lost and they don't even know it because they're trying to give their own meaning to their life. They're chasing meaning and purpose and destiny in all the wrong places and it's not 
satisfying them now and it's not leading them down a path that is going to be any good for them later. And it matters for you and for me. Because those people need to know. They need to know, guys. So it's good for us to know that God blesses us. It's good for us to know that we are secure in His love because of the the message of grace. It's good for you and for me to know. And it's good for us to learn here in these, these pews in this church when we come here on Sunday and to remember that. But I ask you, I beg you, just like Paul said, Paul said, I am in unceasing anguish and great sorrow because of those people that I know who are missing out on life. I ask you, will you let your heart break for those people you know who are missing out? Will you let it sink into your heart and your mind, not just that they're a friend that you can kind of hang out with and they go their own way and that's fine, but to say, I love them so much that I will not be satisfied with saying, do your own thing. And Jesus maybe brings someone else into their life. What if you are the one that God is bringing in? Will you first let your heart break for them? Then second, will you not let it depend on you and say that I will not, that if, they fail, if I try to bring them to Christ and they don't come, that I have somehow failed. But instead, will you trust that God can do His work to draw even those who are furthest away from Him? And no matter how far they have turned away from God, that God can bring them back. That God can bring them to Himself. Will you risk trusting God with that family member, with that friend? And not think of them as a lost case that you just give up on. And then finally, once your heart is broken for them, once you have learned to trust that God can draw them back, will you be His hands? Will you be the feet of Jesus? Will you be His voice calling them back, chasing them, holding them with the love of Christ and say, do you know how much God loves you? Do you know how much He wants you to know His love. Maybe you're not confident about that. Maybe you don't know how to share. If so, don't stay silent. Don't just stand up and and leave at the end of this and say, well, that's all really nice, but I don't know what to say. I would be more than happy to meet in a group or meet with you as an individual and talk with you about how to express the reason for your hope. Because Jesus has not just called me to do the work of building up the church. Ephesians 4, he gave the pastors, teachers, and evangelists to equip you guys 
so that it's not just me reaching out with God's love and you maybe calling people to a church service to say, hey, come and listen to the pastor so pastor can say about Jesus. He has called me to equip you and any of you who are willing to, I would be happy to help guide you, talk with you, and equip you to share the reason for your hope with those that you can reach in a way that I never could. I want to be that for you. And I ask that you ask God to let your start with letting your heart break for those that you may have thought lost forever. Let's pray. God, you are a God of faithfulness. You are a faithful and loving and true God. And you are a God of power and goodness and wisdom. God, I admit that I sometimes let myself get into to a funk of, of thinking that, that I need to just give up on some people and just treat them as if they're just not going to come to you. But God, you caused Paul's heart to break for the Israelites who had rejected you and who had persecuted him and pushed him out of cities and sent him to jail and caused him to be killed. His heart broke for them. And God, you want our hearts to break for those that we love as well. So God, make our hearts soft enough to break for what your heart breaks for. Show us that you are strong enough, good enough, and faithful enough to draw to you even those who are farthest away. And then equip us, train us, call us, and send us to show love to those people who need you so desperately and don't even know it. Jesus, this is perhaps one of the hardest prayers we can pray. Give us the faith to pray that prayer nevertheless and watch for you to fulfill it in us. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand for, uh, for the benediction. And now, may Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, so that because you have been rooted and grounded in love, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and thus to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you all may be filled up to the fullness of God. Amen. You're dismissed.